0: Hi Andrew, how are
1: you? I'm well today and I enjoy chatting with you about life. It's uh, been a long time and it's uh, good to remember some of these things that were important to me.
0: Yeah, well your family approached me about um, us getting together and having a chat because they could see how important that was that they wanted to Uh, get all your tips and tricks on life
1: well I guess the influences of my mom and dad were growing up after the war was something that uh, influenced me and uh, I was the first person in our sort of extended family that went to university and my mom and dad always encouraged me to go on and get an education and I think it was because my father had to quit school in grade 9. So he encouraged me. In fact, in first year he even helped me out with some of my English writing which was uh, a good thing for him to do. And I think if he'd had an opportunity, he would have gone on a bit more himself. But anyway, when I got to university, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And uh, when you're in a big group of people, I was in this course called Zoology. And the lecturer in the room was charismatic and he would talk about all the travels that he had made around the world, looking at plants and animals and everything, and I guess I thought, that's what I want to be. So after first year, um, I thought, I didn't want to be a mounted police anymore, I wanted to be a biologist and carried on that career. and. That was my university life.
0: So you became a biology lecturer? Is that right?
1: Well, in the summers, to pay for my university education, I would go out in in the bush in Canada and work for forestry departments, uh, mining companies, anything that would... in Canada, May to September is the summer period, and no university. So you had, I would go and work somewhere in the mountains in Canada. And when working with research scientists, I sort of understood what the real job was, rather than the academic stuff I was learning at university. We. Um, had to do an insect survey so part of that was i had to identify all these bugs you know so like when i went back to university i took a course in entomology and got a distinction because i just mm. had a summer of doing all of that so the practical as well as the academic was what happened through my university career
0: And you can see that nowadays, where a lot of the um, modern academic doesn't involve much practical.
1: You're right. When my son, Max, who now works over on York Peninsula on a project, was going for his interview, they did ask him about his practical experience. And Max and I had gone out on these scientific expedition surveys And he worked so he knew what practical experience was because he'd been on these so I think that's what got him the job besides Mm. having his academic
0: so you went out together for fun or were you working together well
1: the scientific expedition group is a um, not-for-profit organization of people who do surveys for the museum or other institutions and we go to remote places because they don't know what lives there. That was a big insight Max and I would go on some of these trips together when he was you know in his last year of university sort of thing and uh, for me coming from Canada, it's all new like I'm back in primary school again, you know like I don't know, what's there, and I don't recognize the stuff, and we were with some Aboriginal guys, and they said, you know, eat that, but don't eat that, that's poisonous, and they looked roughly the same. Mm. So that knowledge that they had, um, I'm back in kindergarten again, you know, like it's, but it was worth being out there, because I didn't mind being out of my element, because I was learning new things. And when I was back at university, I'd be training teachers, and I would be talking to them about, how do you get young kids turned on to science? What are the things that they will be curious about? So I could talk to them about wolves and bears, but I could also talk to them about, don't eat that plant, that was poisonous, sort of thing, and trying to get them to be curious.
0: Yeah, I was, I was hoping you were going to mention that because I wonder whether uh, we've lost that art of being curious.
1: I don't think I have. I've um, worked in a lot of different countries so I guess I've been an explorer in a lot of ways. The part that I find interesting is when you step out of your culture and are in another situation. Like um, being in China, for example, and not being able to read or speak the language. How do you get by? Mm. What, what is it that you connect to because you can't read the signs, you can't speak the language, there's nobody around that looks like you. You know that's, for some people that's frightening, but I I never found it so. I found it as a learning experience with with our kids. Like Julie and I took our kids, and some of them still remember. You know the experiences they had. It was quite different.
0: And how was that from? The first day you got there till the last day you got there?
1: Well, I think for me and for the kids, we started to adapt and learn about new things. And as Australia is multicultural, we were multicultural, and it was interesting that. Some of our friends before we went said, you know, you're taking your kids out of school and you're taking them to this foreign country? How, how can you do that? And um, my wife's a nurse, so we, we had some health issues, but that was one of the reasons that we could go. And I would respond to the critics that This was their education, not just from books, but experience. Mm
0: -hmm. So important. We were talking earlier about the um, magazine article you were looking at with regards time.
1: Yeah. Um, Time, for me, is Remembering some of the past, but being very much in the present because I have a lot of activities that give me joy. And maybe that's why my brain is still young, even though the body needs new shock absorbers and, you know, I need probably a retread and I'm living in an older body and my hearing's not that good. But my mind is very active. I think it's because of time and curiosity and being in the present situation. Um, I enjoy writing, which is a struggle. Uh, I enjoy painting, which I'm getting better at. And there comes a point where you tend to recognize that you have a talent. I never did art in school. Self-recognition is a stage of your life development, I think. Um, Not that you're up yourself, but you say, okay, I look around at the others who are working, mine's not too bad, you know, like, it's getting to that point, and I think for younger people, that's where they've got to, getting back to China. James was 10 years old, my son James was 10 years old, and he played soccer and he taught all the young Chinese boys about his age how to play soccer. He was the star. They all loved him because they're playing in the dirt, kicking the ball, but he was directing them even though he couldn't speak their language. They understood what he was doing and showing nonverbally. So that was kind of interesting for him Mm. to... Because he talked about it later. Those boys understand what I'm doing.
0: Without talking.
1: Without talking, Mm. yeah.
0: What about the children? How do they see time, like the grandchildren?
1: The grandchildren? Well, I've got chooks out the back. So I think my grandson probably first word was chickens, you know, like we'd go out with a bit of bread and poke it through the wire, and he'd feed the chickens. And he would laugh his head off, you know, and getting them in touch with real things, you know, like the garden and the chickens and things like that. Some of the city kids don't get that opportunity. They enjoy Um, most things, music, playing with things, they've got some trains over in the kids room and uh, we have been teaching both of them, the other one's too young yet, to cook and so...
0: You like to cook don't you?
1: Yeah we make buns but they're Uh, You know some of my early memories is mixing up the bowl and getting the spoon at the end to lick and you know Those are the child's memories. So I'm doing that with with Harvey and Zoe and they can make biscuits or they can make cupcakes and Take them home and you know, I made this sort of thing and as they grow up it's a positive attitude towards I think what my dad hooked me in with was I'll teach you how to make your favorite food. What's your favorite food? You know, those are the kind of things that appeal to younger kids. You know, their, their opportunity to make these things.
0: Mm, definitely. Yeah. yeah, If you if you're going to like the taste of the outcome, you're going that's to be right. happy to cook it, aren't you? Yeah, that's mm. right. What about these grandchildren? What do they teach you?
1: Well, when I'm with the young ones, I'm probably thinking like an adult and they're thinking like a four-year-old. So I watch them. I get two things from that and the classic phrase is through the eyes of a child and that's not just a euphemism it's it's a if you're tuned into it they look at things from that point of view which probably i had forgotten because at some point i still had those eyes so when i see them do something i sort of think back of time wise when i was little and maybe encourage them to move forward with the idea that they've just come up with, you know, like Harvey came to me the other day and the train wasn't working and he doesn't speak in sentence but all he did was hand me the train and said battery. Like he knew that in that train there was a battery. He didn't know anything else other than battery, that non-verbally is, Papa changed the battery, you know, like he didn't have the words yet, but, so, battery, so I got a screwdriver and I showed him how to undo the little flap, and he put the new battery in, and we screwed it back up again, you know, big smile on his face, like he had learned, Mm. battery. Mm. battery yeah, you know His words yeah
0: when you hang out with your grandchildren is, is it a reminder that there's not much time left
1: well I'm I'm not upset about passing on or dying or whatever the phrase is because I've done so many things in my life and uh, I've been an explorer and also, <clears throat> I've been writing things down and doing podcasts now of what I've experienced. I guess the title could be I Haven't Wasted My Time, you know what I mean? I, I, I'm still enjoying it. and. When I go to sleep for the last time, that's, I won't know. Hmm. It was interesting when I was in Korea, I spent some time with some Buddhist monks, and um, I'm not a strongly religious person, but I'm, I've read a lot about Buddhism, and I've read a lot about Muhammad and Christians and so forth, and I read their stuff. But this monk taught me sort of meditation in a way, and I wasn't, I was a bit skeptical. That's another thing about being an explorer. I'm skeptical until I either experience or somebody will prove it to me. And he taught me meditation. and. I was able, when you think of time, I was able to stop time. And there was sort of like a journey out of your body. It was sort of like, I don't know what the words are. I can describe the feelings, like I'm sitting there and watching myself. That's how I describe it. I'm not cognitive, and yet I'm a participant observer kind of relationship. And the first time it was pretty scary, I thought, oh, geez. But uh, I understand more now what he was on about, what he was doing about realization of self by having able to meditate and get rid of all the clutter. That's what I call it. Your mind is working in all sorts of, I must and I shouldn't, and all these sort of things that you might want to do even, desires. I think it's ego, but in a meditative state, it tends to be relaxing and in the now. It's, it's good. I don't do it all the time, but I, I have a strong memories of what this guy taught me. He was an old man, and he'd spent all his life, and I said to him one day, I've traveled the world, and you've been in this room, this monastery, for all your life pretty well, since you were six years old, you told me. We, we we come from so different places. You've been doing this since you were five, and now you're 80. Do you miss, or do you think about what's on the outside world? He said... Um, I hear about it. But if you don't miss it, then you, you don't know. You, it's, it's an unknown. I can't answer your question. Wise man. Mm. What you don't know. Yeah. But even as that was his life I really enjoyed my life as a, an explorer because it gave me opportunity to realize, in a way, how much my family and culture had put an imprint on me. And then when I move out of that area, I start to think about what do I like and what do I don't like. What do I like and don't like about the new culture. I reevaluate my own position on a lot of things by being in that state of outside my cultural And I think a lot of people find that pretty frightening, too, because we have this cultural blueprint that we grew up with. And uh, it's your language, it's your customs, it's your parental influence, all of these things that you're probably not even aware of, but uh, if you're Maybe courageous enough to step outside and reevaluate what is your culture and what is I like about China or Korea or these people or how they do things differently. I remember one time I was sitting in the market, and there were these two older men talking to each other in Chinese. I couldn't understand what they were saying, but I was watching them. And one man would say something and the other man would shake his head and then draw a character on his hand with his finger. And then the other man would shake his head up and down. They were speaking a language and I was understanding what was going on between these men. Even though I couldn't understand the words, it was just blah 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 to me. But I could see what they were doing. And I guess this guy spoke Mandarin and this guy spoke Cantonese. I don't know. I don't know what they were doing. Anyways. Watching. Watching. Sitting on a train in a country, watching people get off and on. And then they would look, and I would be the only white guy on the train, maybe. And they'd, oh, okay. And then they'd go and sit down. Some people would sit down next to me. Other people would try and talk to me in English, you know, maybe to improve their own language. Um a lot of first or second question would be where are you from? And by saying I was a Canadian was a good thing. It wasn't that I was an American, which in a lot of cultures, being a Canadian's better than being an American, although I'm not against Americans, you know, mm-hmm. I mean I'm talking about their perception in the world Mm. of our cultural stuff. Because I think Canada's got the reputation of being very multicultural, like Australia. So, um, yeah, that was, oh, you're from Canada. Yeah, okay, that's good. You know, there's stories to be told about uh, Canada. And I could just throw this in a little bit of history When Mao Zedong was doing his great march, there was a Canadian missionary doctor that saved Mao's life. His name was Norman Bethune, And so the Chinese have a feeling that because Mao's life was saved by this Canadian missionary doctor, if you're from Canada, then, you know, they're happy to uh, talk to you because of that historical event that happened. Mm. Strange, isn't it?
0: Very interesting. Wonder what would have happened to the course of history if he didn't save him.
1: Well, yes. The course of history of Chiang Kai-shek and Mao was uh, the big big split in China. You know, with what's going on there now, I'm not against Chinese, but I think leadership has a lot to do with it, just like their leadership with America and uh, how it's changed and the leadership in China, how it is becoming more autocratic and the people aren't getting recognition. Because a lot of the students I was talking to when i in China were a lot more international students rather than being repressed by a particular doctrine like they are now so we had a good time in China but I find that I would be disadvantaged going back there now at this present time
0: Hmm. yeah you talked about people watching it's fascinating really isn't it yeah if you're inquisitive or curious then you have to People watch?
1: People watching is good because, in situations where you can't, you know, sometimes you sit on a bus in uh, here in Adelaide, you hear conversations. You can hear, you know, I mean, they might even be talking in Greek to each other, or you can't understand that. But so then all you have to do is watch the nonverbal language that's going on between them. And try and pick that up. Recognition too, different. I'll give you another example. I'm riding the train in Korea from Seoul to Busan, and I'm sitting on a side bench, and a woman got on. She had two bags and a baby on her back, tied, you know, like, and a baby on her front. And when she got on the train, there was no place for her to sit. So I got up to give her a seat. You know, I looked at this woman. She had enough load. And she kept shaking her head no, because I was an older white man, I think. And then one of the men sitting across spoke to her in Korean and told her what? to do. So she then took the seat. She was given permission by this older man that, you know, you should take the seat because blah, blah, blah. So she just sat down and gave me the sign of thank you very much. But again, that's how culture affects people. I had a boss that would wave his finger at me. And it was very important that you showed respect to older men. He found out that I was three months older than him. He stopped waving his finger at me. (laughs) You know, it's funny things like that. You just um, come across, not that I really was affected by him waving his finger at me, but I never figured out why he was doing it. And I asked somebody in the, Staff room, oh, he probably thinks he's older than you. Ah, mm. oh, is that it? So when I saw him, I asked him, his, because he spoke English very well, I asked him when his birthday was and I told him when my birthday was. I was three months older, yes. Uh, funny things that happen culturally.
0: How old are you, Andrew?
1: I'm 83 now, um, yes. I have um, outlived my parents, but I haven't outlived my grandparents. So I might have got the good genetic uh, markers to live to my 90s, which probably I'm aiming for, but uh, I sold my car the other day, I took myself off the road personally. Not that the kids were telling me that I had to, but I chose to. Stop driving at 83. Um, my hearing's not the best. I have um, eyesight that's not really that good. I have macular degeneration in one eye; the other eye works well. But I just decided I don't want to cause an accident because of my inability. So sold the car and i ride everywhere on the bus and tomorrow it'll be free 24/7 mm-hmm. you know but uh when i went to work i used to ride the bus all the time so I, I i don't mind uh public transport and there's ubers you know like what's that oh that's modern you just phone them up and a car comes and takes you somewhere drops you off credit card doom. Saves a lot of money by not having petrol being the price it is, insurance being the price it is, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So that's an advantage sometimes of being older. Mm. Yeah.
0: Some of your um, children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren that aren't even born may consider becoming a teacher. How do you know as a teacher... That you're successful that you're actually getting the message across
1: i think interpersonal skills with your students uh, is a lot more important than knowledge and telling them things because nowadays they can get everything on their phone so it's trying to develop that dynamic with your students of being curious or asking them what they're interested in and trying to facilitate, trying to mentor that, you know, they might be thinking to have a particular job or profession or something and it might have been because of their mother and father saying, oh, you should be a librarian or you should be a whatever.
0: That happens a lot, doesn't it? It
1: does, yeah. That's the family baggage, isn't it? Mm. So I think if you're a good teacher, it's that relationship, interpersonal skills that you have with your students is, is most important. I think the other thing that I have done in my career is I've got groups of three and four to work together and try and facilitate that Group interaction and teaching them how that interaction works. Now, like there are in the group of four, there's one that's going to be dominant. You and I are firstborn, we know about that. Mm. There are ones that are passive or shy, and it might just be their personality, not because they don't know. But just that they're shy. There's others that deflect and try and make jokes about things as a probably a cover up for their anxiety or something like that. So, what I was trying to do with the groups is put four or five of them together, and then we'll run some exercises in group dynamics to work out the positive the people that take notes you know all the different things that you can get out of a group Mm. and then I try and get them okay now that we've worked that I want you to be the leader today you're the quiet person I want you to be the leader today and ask the questions that's your job that's all it is is a job you don't have to do anything else and tomorrow you're not going to have that job. So today, that's what you need to do. And then you, the one that's talking all the time, I want you to take notes. Don't talk, write it down. Everything that is happening in that group. And you, I want you to be the spokesperson because at the end of the exercise, you've got to tell the other groups what you did, and that group over there, they've got to say what they did, you know? So like it was trying to build that way of learning um, rather than just getting all the answers on your phone, because we can all look it up on our Mm. phone. That's, That's simple. But what do you do with it? How do you build on those kind of facts, and how do you have a debate you know, because facts change with new information. So if you Constantly. To, yeah, constantly. Mm. Yeah. So what you've got to do is think about how this is what we know today. This is in time now. We can think about the past and call it history, or we can think about what the future development might be. No more coal. So we need solar energy. You know, like think about these sort of aspects in time of where you are, because you're of that age. What's it gonna be like when you're sixty? Thinking about that sort of future and what do you want to do when you're sixty?
0: And no one knows the answer to that question.
1: No, no. Nobody knows. But you might have some ideas about, you know, you could worry about climate change, and you could do your bit. Now, there's a lot of other people that are not doing their bit, but you might sleep better at night because you're doing your bit, or it might be your idea. But uh, we don't know what the future is. But what we do know is how you can be more adaptable to the change that's coming. There is a lot of change coming. And if you look back, there's change, 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 change. You are here now. There's change, change, change. So think about these sort of aspects of life. That's what I would say to younger people.
0: And do you uh, seek feedback from them so that you can figure out how you're going as a teacher?
1: All the time, my children, um, I guess I could describe it as my children are adults with their own family now. So I have, both my wife and I have good relationships with our children, sort of adult-adult, not parent-child, but adult-adult relationships. So if you were my son sitting there, and you wanted to be critical about how I was managing my garbage, which he did the other day, Mm -hmm. um, I take that because I've been a bit lazy, or I hadn't read the latest thing about how it's managed. So they are able to talk to me, not as they're the parent, but as an adult to an adult, you know, like we talk. My son, my other son has had his 40th birthday. And so when I play with his son, um, we talk as father to father, about how we notice him growing up. So that's adult to adult conversation that we have. And uh, He said to me, you know, I, I like the way you're working with my son, because you are, and he said to me, I remember you doing things like that with us. Oh, okay. I felt good about that.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. So there's different things. My uh, daughter talks more to my wife than to me, but it's sometimes, you know, about clothes and babies and things like that which I could have an opinion but it's 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 not something that I that I focus on but anyway she's always encouraging and wants to read my stories that I've written and will be critical of them constructively critical I think that's part of that adult relationship can you be critical but constructively critical I think that's well part that's what of, you'd hope for yeah that's what I hope for and that's sort of basically what I've got with most with the three of them is they understand that I'm open to that constructive critical how do I get any better you know like I'm You're not really a writer, Andrew. You're trying to do it in a different sort of way, but you're still learning. I haven't...
0: How long ago did you start your writing course?
1: Um, About four years ago, I went with different writing groups. It was in the central library, and I met people that shared their writings, but I didn't find that I got really good constructive criticism. It was almost, I like this and I like that and I like this, okay.
0: Um, What made you do it?
1: I don't know. Um, I'm not quite sure. Oh, I think possibly it was something to do with, my mother gave me a box of old photos before she died. She invited me over to her place and um, we sat there in her place and she brought up this cardboard box full of photographs and on the back she had written things, you know, our ancestors and Andrew, um, Christmas 1950, that sort of thing. Mm. So when I started to look at some of these photos, I just had an idea that I wanted to write a bit of genealogy down that my mother had said about my father and my grandfather and things like that. So it was the start of the genealogy that got me to try and record some of this because my other brothers and sisters were not doing it. I guess that's what triggered me off. Because my mother was born in a log cabin, you know, like, how many stories can you tell your grandchildren? Do you know that your great-grandmother was born in a log cabin in Canada, in the wilds of Ontario?" And they'd look, wow, you know, that's unusual. So I think that was probably what started me in that, because there's a photo of the log cabin. That's where your grandmother was born. So I think that recording um, was good. The other thing that I wanted to share was that my grandfather was killed in the First World War, and my mother was only 18 months old when he he was killed overseas. So she really never knew a father And there's pictures of him, but not much known about him, because he was just a young man, signed up, like a lot of Australians signed up and got mowed down at Gallipoli. He was mowed down somewhere in Europe. And uh, so that genealogy stuff I wanted to share with my grandchildren at some point. So they would have an idea of where they came from. That's mm. sort of what I, I think started me on this journey.
0: Yeah, it's, um, a lot of people maybe uh, think they can't do it or they leave it to too late. Um, to take it on at 80, that's pretty extraordinary.
1: Well, I can record it and I get help. From other people about how to do it and so I recognize that I'm a beginner so I to get help from other people is not a not a bad thing because I've been an educator all my life you mm. know so it's I'm well,
0: always learning part of the trick to it is to make it interesting otherwise it'll just collect dust
1: yeah that's true I think the photographs are interesting, and what I'm recording is probably factual information because I wasn't there. So it's more like a historical document, it's not until I get to my family um, that I can express how I feel. For example... um, I was married before and I had a son and a daughter, that was in my first marriage. And when my son was 25, Julie and I had our children in China and he said that he wanted to come, he'd finished his bachelor's degree and he wanted to come to China. So I got on the train and went back to uh, Beijing to meet him when he got off the plane. Now I wrote a whole bunch of interesting information about meeting, his name is Ian, meeting Ian, and then our journey back to Xi'an where our family was. And the events that happened to us on that journey back, a lot of my feelings went into that because it was important and I shared it with him. And he was really excited because that recounted the events really clearly and it was what I felt about it and the things that happened to us, Um, unusual events. And it was, this was the first time that he was in, out of country. So uh, I was basically looking after him, you know, and his introduction to what do I do now was uh, quite good. Yeah, many adventures. So he was with us for about three months and uh, lived with the family and travelled around and did things, yeah.
0: So he's a lot older than your kids.
1: Yeah, he's uh, in his 50s now, yeah, so I was um, 30 when I got divorced the first time, yeah, 30 years old. So he's, he was two years old, so he's um, in his late 50s now, and he's got his own family. Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah, well, he'll be interested to see what you produce in your yeah, genealogy. Yeah, I think
1: so, yes, pass mm. it on. Hmm. travels with Ian in China yes Hmm. there's a picture of him that I took and we're standing in the uh, great uh, plaza and Mao's pictures up on the wall there I think we've all seen that so he's standing there with his hand looks like he's holding up the picture just by taking that funny shot you know this was before selfies but Anyway, we traveled on the train in one of these carriages. There were 80 people in this carriage in bunks. It was um, called hard transfer, like there was soft carriages and hard carriages, and we, we couldn't get soft carriages. They were all booked out. So there's eighty people in this carriage, no food and a uh A toilet up there, you know, just a hole in the floor. It was rough. Mm.
0: Good introduction to China. Yeah, Mm.
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah, different places.
0: Well, you spent a bit of time also in Jamaica?
1: Yeah, after my divorce happened, um, my wife had had a mental breakdown and she wasn't able to work or couldn't work. And I was the only one that could um, provide for the family, for her and the two children. She pressed the, the divorce, and it wasn't that any of us had done anything, it was just that she had this mental breakdown and couldn't deal with anything. So I applied for jobs, and I got a job with the Canadian Embassy in Kingston, Jamaica, working at the university. And I had that job for three years, and I was able to provide for the wife and the two children, because I had a university-supplied house, plus my salary, which allowed me to travel around. And my job was to develop Local teaching materials um, for the Jamaican teacher training colleges. That was my official job. Um, and they had sent a Jamaican academic to Canada to be trained. So I was filling in his area while he was being trained. Um, so Working in Jamaica was probably my first time out of my culture, and uh, I saw a lot of things that were sure different, you know, like I would go to the country and work in the teacher training college and one of them would take me to some of the local schools, dirt floors, wooden benches, no materials, you know. A slate and some chalk. They were at the bottom of the rungs, you know. This 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 was an experience coming from Canada, where I saw the basic education, and yet the teachers were trying to help the young kids learn to write. Um, it was sad at times seeing that level of poverty. I guess you could call it that. It wasn't something I was used to. But anyway, um, I worked there and enjoyed what I did. I had a lot of experiences with math education and developing materials. And uh, one thing that was really good for me there the woman that was my mentor in the math education program, and I worked with her quite a bit. After about a month, she um, said to me, "You should hire a maid." And I said, "No, no, no! I, I can't have a servant. That's you know, it's not something I, I'm comfortable with. I, you know, this is." She said to me quite bluntly, "Andrew." get over yourself, you're giving somebody a job. I hadn't thought of it that way. So I interviewed a few people, and I finally hired Evelyn, who was my maid and housekeeper for the three years that I was there. She had a grade five education. She was about five foot tall, very black-skinned, had two daughters, but was wise and um, she would look after me, look after the house. She lived in the shanty town, she'd come on the weekdays on the bus and look after the house and I might be away in the country somewhere, she'd do my washing or things like that. It was I'd never had that kind of experience and it took me a while to get used to it and I've written this story. One day, um, she said to me, she called me Mr. Andrew. Mr. Andrew, can I cook anything for you? She wasn't surprised that I cooked in the house, because her husband was a cook. And uh, I said, Evelyn, can you make me a cake, I'm having a dinner party tonight, it's sort of a spice cake or something like that. She said, okay. And I gave her money and I went to work and I came back um, that night and there was this lovely cake sitting on the sideboard and um, I cooked dinner which was curried goat and you know a few dishes like that which was part of the Jamaican cuisine. And everybody loved the cake. So the next day I said, Evelyn, can you write me the recipe? Everybody loved your cake. And she spoke in patois. Me don't write good, no, brother. She'd say. I said, well, um, can I watch you? She said, oh, okay, Mr. Andrew. And then about a week later, I had a day off and I said, can I watch you make the cake? So um, she said, okay, we go market, because in the Patwa market. You know. um, so we went to the market, and she bought some things, and everybody was calling out to me. Uh, doctor, come this way, man, come this way, doctor. And I said, Evelyn, why are they calling me doctor? You know, in in those days, Doctors Without Borders and American Peace Corps all had long hair and beard, so they thought I was a doctor from the clinic or something because I was in this market, the only white person in the market, but I was with Evelyn who, and it was her market. So they were calling out to me. So we went home and Evelyn started making this cake and I just sat there and wrote down all the things that she did and then she popped it in the oven. And I said, well, what do you call it? She said, that cake, Naaman, is dump and stir with spice. My grandma teach I. So I learned how to make a spice cake by writing down, watching what she did. And now I can make it. So someday I'll make you a (laughs) dump and spur with spice. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Is it any good? Yeah, it is,
1: it's wonderful. Mm. Yeah.
0: so the language um, was predominantly English for you over there or did you learn to speak?
1: Well, it's it's mostly English because Jamaica was an English colony and all the slaves that were brought to the country would sometimes speak a patois, which in a way was so the white people wouldn't understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. So they were, it's sort of like we might say teenage English today, you know, they can speak in phrases and I don't know, understand what they say. So there's a Jamaican patois language, which I didn't get all of it. Uh, and then there's the Jamaican accent, you know, there's which is sort of halfway between Patois and English. So brother is brother, B-R-U-D-D-E-R. Hey, brother you know, and things like that. And so there was all sort of words that I would pick up, and quite often I would try to imitate it. Mm. And uh, people would be surprised that I could do that after three years, you get pretty good at it.
0: Yeah, well, I was gonna say, did you default into that, you know, just by day to day?
1: It's sort of fun in a way, you know, like when I'm working at the university, I'm speaking proper English because all the academics are speaking that way. But um, on the staff, there are Rastafarians, so they speak the patois, And uh, every so often I'd be with some of those and try out, you know, some of the words or get them to show me or tell me some of the words that they used. That was a culturally rich exchange.
0: Did you ever um, bring them out in your other teachings, just from a shock value point of view?
1: Not so often, no. I think it was context. I remember sitting with some of the Rasta brothers and they were in a drumming. So there was a circle of us. There must have been about five men with drums and they gave me a drum. And I'm sitting there with the drums with the men, you know, with their big dreadlocks and everything. And we were just drumming along, you know, and they'd be speaking. And every so often I'd either try and ask them or throw in a word that I understood and they'd turn to me and smile or laugh, you know, mm. like I was included in mm. that sort of way. Yeah, okay. Yeah.
0: What about the, everyone hears about the um, you know marijuana, were you well, confronted by that down there?
1: It wasn't legal, but I can say this because it was 50 years ago On my passport, it said visiting professor, and it also said technical officer. So that was on my official uh, Canadian embassy passport. One day I was asked to go to the uh, embassy for a briefing, and this is true, the Le Commission in Canada was working on the medical use of marijuana, not to get you stoned, but the medical use of marijuana. And the Toronto Addiction Research Foundation wanted samples of Jamaican marijuana sent to them. And the embassy said, now you're going around to all these teacher um, training places around the island, if you go to the market you can probably buy some marijuana. What, I would, what they wanted was me to buy some, write down the details like where it was bought and you know all of that sort of thing, and then take it to the embassy and they would ship it home in their diplomatic bags. Um, so sample five was from Ocharias, you know, in their market and sample 6 was you know from Manique college in another place so that was my unofficial technical officer job
0: mm. that
1: when i traveled around i would and because i had a um, diplomatic passport if i'd been caught with it i was not going to be because i was given permission to collect give it to the embassy and they would ship it off and the uh, Toronto Addiction Research Foundation did all the sampling of the THC and the CBCs and all the different chemicals that are in marijuana. Some are medicinal, some get you stoned, some are pain relief, you know, all of that aspect which Australia's going through now. Mm. Um, So that was an unofficial
0: Mm, job. and occasionally, every now and again, a little bit went missing?
1: Well, when I was with the Rastafarians, sometimes, you know, like the American Indians, they'd pass the pipe around. So if you said no, you know, you were the odd person. So the pipe came around, I'd take a couple of puffs and pass it on to the next person.
0: So it was like a communal ceremonial type thing?
1: It was, yes. They, it, it's what, it was a ceremonial thing, yes, because they looked at marijuana in a different way than the Western culture looked at it. They saw it as a way of heightening their expectations, trying to get them out of the slavery mentality And um, when you're stoned, you're in a sort of transcendental state of consciousness. And that was the way that they used marijuana in their ceremonies. And they would take a puff and pass it on and say something like, Halle Selassie be praised, and that was their black god, if you want to call it, from Ethiopia, and that was part of their uh, religious structure that they gave up um, when they smoked the weed, or ganja as they called it.
0: Mm. Yeah. If only that ceremony would be celebrated more, rather than demonised.
1: Well... It's taken quite a while, but in certain countries, you know, having marijuana as a recreational drug is um, legal. Mm. And if you drive a car with it, you know, it's like driving it under the influence of alcohol. Mm. So you know, it's it's got to be. But I think too many people. It's not like crack cocaine, it's not like opium, it's not like these, it's a a different kind of. And even in Australia, there's the medical use of marijuana that Maggie Beer and her colleagues have put together as a pain relief. And it's not a THC content, but it's the Kavanagh's content that does have, and there's a lot of research being done with people who have mental illness to try and, like meditation, take them out of their state of being into a different thing and letting them have that kind of experience to maybe wake them up from their anxiety or whatever's mm. troubling their head. Mm. So there's a cultural um, experience and a scientific experience that's going on here in Australia and I don't know quite what's going to come from it
0: did the monks use it for their meditation no no well certainly they achieved the same aim but they did it through yeah the, they medi- it. the
1: meditation yeah they do it through meditation and this for the Rastafarians it's a drug-induced meditation Mm. And when you stop, you're back to the same level as you were before you started. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Fascinating. It was fascinating, and I learned a lot. And I I guess I came to a realization that a lot of the propaganda is just propaganda based on fear without knowledge. Mm. And the reason that I took on that job for the embassy is that I was working with an organization that was trying to get knowledge about the medical use not banning it because people were getting stoned but taking the plant and separating it into different compounds that we do with all our plants that that's what 95% of medicines based on mm. aspirin comes from willow bark you know like so doing that research is is probably why I got involved
0: yeah 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 it's funny that it's been so demonized yet alcohol hasn't
1: no that's right
0: and alcohol is probably one of the worst things
1: it's probably worse than Mm. a lot of them yeah Mm. and it's so freely available and I guess the government doesn't want to change that because they get so much tax from it it's like Mm. the petrol they get if I buy a can of beer The amount of taxes on the percentage of alcohol in that can of beer. And I had some stout the other day that was 10% alcohol. Now that can of beer was double the price, Mm. and it was the government that was doing that rather than the manufacturing of the beer. Mm. So that's why, you know, they've had a bit of a go with tobacco that's another thing that was probably worse Yeah, the government's tried to reduce that by raising the price of the drug tobacco yeah. and I remember at university smoking tobacco and it was really hard to give up ah oh, very addictive I found
0: mm, funny I that I haven't
1: smoked tobacco in I don't know 40-50 years now
0: that's why you look like you're 70 when you're 84.
1: Yeah, could be. Mm. Could be. I had tobacco, could have killed me, yeah. Could have. Yeah. Hard to say.
0: We talked about time earlier, and um, no matter how hard you try, even at 84, one day, time will be up. Why not? Yeah.
1: And... I don't look forward to it, but I don't fear it. And I guess my answer to it is that I've outlived my parents. I'm active day to day. I do the things that I want to do.
0: Well, you've just increased your life by giving up your car.
1: Well, uh, it's changed my life in the sense that I walk more, which is good and my kids bought me a watch which records the number of steps I do a day and I usually hit my 6,000. Now that uh, I don't get in the car and drive somewhere, I walk down the street, get on the bus, go and then get off the bus and walk around and do what I need to do. So it's been positive giving up my car Mm. and being fit Um, yeah, um, I remember talking to the Buddhist monk about death, and he said to me, we don't fear death because we've reached a point of self-realization, that it's just the normal function you know of doing things
0: as natural as birth as
1: natural as birth as every other plant and animal on the planet does you know Mm. philosophically we were born of the stars and we return to the stars now that's avoiding the question from a personal point of view but uh
0: well most people live as if they're never going to die
1: Some people do and some people are bored and and they die early. Mm. The reason that my mother um, invited me over and gave me that box of photos is that she had leukemia. She knew that she had 10 years to live because the diagnosis for leukemia was She lived to nine and three-quarter years. And when that came over, she said, come and talk to me. And she said, you know, I'm going to die soon. So we had a talk. I was sad about her saying that to me. But then we talked. And she was wise and said it's nothing that she feared and that, she will miss interactions when she's gone. And she doesn't know what, you know, if there's an afterlife or anything like that. But having that conversation with her sort of put me in the point of saying, okay, I guess it's gonna be my turn one of these days. So I had had that conversation. And when I came back to Australia, I went to Flinders Medical Centre for some other reason, and the doctor said to me, "I want to need a family history." And I talked about my mother's death and my father's death and things like that. And he said to me, "Your mother died of leukemia, um, probably genetic. Do you want me to test you to see whether you've got it?" And I thought about that. Let me get back to you. So I came home and talked to my wife about do I want this test or not to know when I'm going to die or not going to die? So finally I decided I'll go have the test. I didn't have that gene. But it was that decision making about do I have that test or not test? Do I want to know when I'm going to die? Mm. So that was part of my knowledge in gaining no, I'm not afraid of dying it'll happen someday and I guess I'm not ready for it but there's nothing I can do
0: well at 84 to be saying that that's awesome that you're not ready because yeah, a lot ready. of you, other of your mates have been going get me out of here <laughs> I've had enough
1: <laughs> I haven't met too many people in, in my experiences who were either so depressed that they were suicidal or were so old that um, I think people with dementia don't know where they are. Probably that's what I would fear is having dementia and Mm. not knowing. Mm. As long as I don't have dementia, there's things to do and things I enjoy. That's what I that's where I am now mm. yeah
0: it's a good spot okay the um yeah I had a thought then and I've lost it <laughs> lost your thought. it's time no I was going to ask you um oh that's right uh, all too often we wait till the person's died before we celebrate them Yeah, that's true. As opposed to telling people what we think of them while they're alive Mm -hmm. and how much we value them. But having said that, um, no one really gets to see what their funeral was like or even get to be at their funeral because they're gone. They're gone. Imagine if you could give your own eulogy. What would that be like?
1: Oh, writing my own eulogy. There's a task for tomorrow morning. (laughs) When I get up and fresh, I'm going to write my own eulogy.
0: What would you say?
1: What would I say?
0: Yeah. Because obviously, you're not going to be able to go on for hours. No, no, that's true. They'll all start yawning
1: what do I say about Andrew in my own eulogy, or what would people say about me? I can only tell about what I think about myself rather than what other people's impressions are. So I would start my eulogy by saying I've been curious. I've been an explorer. I've gone places that most people wouldn't think of going. The countries I visited have taught me about who I am because of my interactions. My children relate to me as a person. They tell me like I tell them, I'm proud of you, Andrew, I'm proud of you, Max, you're doing some good work. So that kind of relationship that I have with my children and my wife has been immensely happy, important, and something that has sustained me, I guess, in one way, whether I don't recognize it or not, I think I should tell them more. And if I start the conversation, they will probably tell me more because we do have this kind of relationship. Now that he's not there, Andrew's not there, I think there will be a hole in their life, but they will be well grounded in what they're gonna do in theirs. I think that was my legacy, and I think I could say that's a eulogy at the end there. That's my legacy. I'm proud of my legacy.
0: Beautiful. Good on you.
1: Well, I don't know what else to say.
0: Well, thank you for the chat.
1: You've been a good mentor, <laughs> Anthony. I'll hear this on the short wave. On the short wave. wave,
0: yeah, one of the waves.
1: One of the <laughs> waves, yeah. And when other people hear it, they might be surprised.
0: Hm, mm, they might be. Well, it's almost um, impossible to tell your life in a hour and a half recording.
1: That's for sure. yeah.
0: but there's, you've definitely given us a beautiful snapshot. Thank you. Okay.